Hello and welcome to the TPM Podcast with your host, Mario Girard. This is part two of the second episode on burnout with Arjun Subramaniam. I hope you caught the first one. If you haven't, definitely listen to that first before you listen to this. It's going to be super interesting as we continue to discuss how burnout affects all of us. How do you combat burnout? You feel that you are in the burnout phase. Maybe if you are, what are the things that you tell people to go and try to do? So I'll share a little bit about my own life. At the base of all these core skills that we talk about, like in the last podcast and this one, I think there's some skills here too. I think that there's a kind of a set of fairly textbook advice someone will give you. And they're all good advice. You should just do them. Okay. Eat right. Don't drink too much. Exercise. Learn to get some rest. Don't use electronics too late at night. This is all really good advice. You just do them. Like no beef with any of it. You just do it. And all of them will reduce the likelihood that you will burn out. I think that for a lot of people, this advice can never actually come true in their life because there's something else. There's something else got to deal with, right? It's a lot like if someone just came and told you and you're an alcoholic or whatever, it's like, well, that's easy. Just stop drinking alcohol. Yeah. Right? And you're like, well, clearly I'm not able to do that. And so I think the conceptual frameworks of some of this stuff is helpful only to the extent that you're able to execute on it. And most people who are already at that stage, they don't need to be told the conceptual framework. They can just be like, oh, yeah, I get it. I'm going to go do those things, right? So if you're not one of those people, what should you do, right? And I think this is where it gets really interesting. You got to figure out what's bothering you. What's amiss in your life? And no one can answer that except you. You You got to figure out what your story is and just own it. And you got to figure out why... You're feeling the way you are. Yeah. You basically have to claim authorship of your story. Yeah. Whatever that story is. You got to just claim authorship of it. In order to do that, it's a sizable investment of time and energy. And you've got to have a willingness to go and do that. Yeah. So that you can be at a place where the conceptual frameworks of well-being can actually work in your favor. Yeah. And that stuff is really hard. There are two things that really helped me. And one of them was cognitive behavioral therapy. I was in behavioral therapy for about seven years, and it made me a better person, a better professional. It helped me understand my own story. I grew up in a very difficult family. It helped me understand some of the causes of my stress and understand how much of it was still things that I had to work through. That was very helpful, and I highly recommend it for anyone that wants to understand themselves better. I can tell you that it dramatically improved my ability to function as a person. Mm. And that showed up at work, 100%. 100%. It shows up in your entire well-being. It shows right? up in my entire life. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? And well-being, right? General well-being, which translates to all facets of your life. Yes. It could be personal, work, everything my, changes. My relationships were better. better. Everything in my life got better. But I will say it was a sizable investment. Of I, time. And, of time and energy. It was like, yeah. you know, three times a week for seven years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was a long time. The reason why I had earlier alluded to the importance of having a diverse source of information, I think a lot of what it takes to live a good life has actually been discovered, rediscovered, written and rewritten for thousands of years. Yes. Okay, people, you're not the first person to wake up in the morning and go, what's wrong with my life? There's nothing new in that question. (laughs) And I assure you, there is a body of work from people that have lived lives, Uh, remarkable lives. 
and have tried to answer that question and yeah. come up with a model for how to live a good life. There were really two very impactful things. One was Viktor Frankl's work, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, and then all of the writings of Stoic philosophers. Very, very influential in helping me just be a better person. And I try to practice them every day. And there's a lot of just deep-rooted wisdom in how to handle adversity, how to be tenacious and gritty, how to carry yourself in a world that's complicated and can have lots of rude surprises for you. You control some things, but you don't control a lot of things, yeah. right? And how to handle that. And I'm not saying this has to be the path for everybody. Yeah. But I think that a lot of times the well-being recommendations tend to come in the flavors of eat right, exercise, yeah. eat right. Yeah. But I think that I wish more people would ask everyone to dig a little deeper. Yeah. Because I think what really ails people is an internally consistent, authentic view that feels like really authentic of what well-being is. Like, what is a life well-lived? Yeah. Right? And you have to define that for yourself. You, you have to do that yourself. Yeah. You have to do that yourself. And if you do that and you live it, then well-being is an output. It comes from that wellspring of like deep-rooted kind of wisdom. Which you have found yourself, which is very specific to you as well. It is very specific to you. And it is not about others, yeah. right? Like there's nothing about this that has anything to do with anyone else except me. Yeah. It's my story. It's my you choices. I'm in control. And whatever yeah. choices, outcomes, all of that belong to me. Yeah. And it's not for everybody. But all I'm saying is that maybe the decision to go down that road can be helpful to others. That makes perfect sense. Probably the next question we have is, how do you help yourself and your colleagues? If you kind of identify that somebody else is having a tough time, what would you do to help them out? I wish if one thing people would know about me to help them. I think a lot of people just want to know that people care about them. Yeah. Humans are deeply primed for social contact yeah. and a sense of tribe and unity. Yeah. And I think with not having that in the physical world, it's becoming harder. But you need to spend that time with your colleagues, encourage them, be empathetic to them, appreciate them. And, you know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I don't think no one can control what other people do. Right. Yeah. Just, it's not it's just not how the world works. Right. It's not how humans work. But if you are kind to others, you have a better shot at positive influence than if you are not. It really just comes down to that. Yeah. But don't do it for X or Y reason. Do it. It has to come from the heart. Yeah. yeah. It has to come from, it's real. Yeah. It's totally real, right? It's like a lot of times these words, like, you know, if you're kind to someone, it can be conflated with like being inauthentic or being a people pleaser or something like that. Like being kind to someone is also being candid with someone. Not disrespectful, but being candid. It takes courage yeah. to be candid with someone. And being kind to someone just means that you're coming at this from a good place. That you are there with that person. You will step in if needed. You'll help them if needed. Yeah. You'll give guidance, your unfiltered feedback, all those things. All those things. Yeah. All those things. Yeah. And sometimes it, everybody's got to own their own lives and sometimes it works. But I can tell you, I don't know of a single person who truly experienced kindness, yeah. right? No matter what the outcome was right? Who truly experienced just the relational quality of kindness and said, man, I wish that that hadn't happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a intrinsic quality that we all look forward to receiving, right? Yeah. I think those are very interesting points. As leaders, what could leaders do for their employees in general 
but also in the context of burnout and in the context of setting people getting burnt out, like what could leaders do? Oh man, this one is such a good question. There's a set of answers to this question. And I think that after the pandemic, I think a bunch of this stuff just needs to get Mm. thrown out. I do, I do. And I think there's a lot of stuff that the pandemic I think is exposing and I don't mean this leaders as in like the software company CEOs or yeah. whatever, right? I mean, like every just, dev man, every manager, every person. Yeah, every group. person. And also just look at like institutional leaders, right? Yeah. Like people that run like big organizations or whatever, right? Yeah. I think the pandemic has created a emperor has no clothes moment for a lot of institutions and a lot of leaders that is obvious to everybody except them. <laughs> All right. And when normal people look around, right? They're like, you know, We've got essential workers that turns out once they're not essential anymore, we don't really take care of them right well. We've just got a hyper-financialized, hyper-mechanized, hyper-GDP-oriented economy. We're capitalists after all. Capitalism is amazing. (laughs) I just want to go on the record and say capitalism is amazing. Uh Okay? I'm a huge beneficiary of capitalism. Someone like me could not exist just like you. You know, I'm, I'm an immigrant born in India. And I live an amazing life. I thank God and, for that. And we couldn't do it without capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Capitalism is amazing, but it's not about capitalism. There's nothing about the capitalist system that says that we shouldn't value things more than GDP. Yeah. Okay. There's bugs in the system. Like there's negative externalities, right? Any, any economist will tell you that there are pricing errors that happen all the time in capitalism. And I think to some extent, Many of the institutions, like the workplaces and the research institutes or whatever, right? Like all of them, they've all kind of been built with some of those metrics in mind. And there's a lot of lip service before the pandemic about health and well-being and of the workforce and all of that. Yeah. Right. And I think there was good intentions. Okay. But they were all kind of a second order effect yeah. of growth yeah. and all that stuff, right? Of the economic outputs. There's nothing wrong. And in fact, we have to have a vibrant growing economy for people to feel good. Okay. There's no way you're going to take 7 billion people and bring well-being to them without like a growing economy. But I think the shift that needs to happen is we've got to find a way to prioritize the impact on workforces under massively stressful events. That has to factor into the equation because what's happening is because it's a negative externality. It's a little bit like sewage in the lake. There's no cost to it. So if you think about all of the impact that falls on employees, their families, their extended families, there's a social reservoir, a social lake that's been absorbing like a shock absorber. It absorbs the impact. All, All this, yeah. But there's no pricing of it. So what happens is you get a lot of people that really dissatisfied and sad. Right. And it also means that like you create corporations and you create like jobs to your point that have no meaning. Yeah. Like you're just like some kind of bean counter or like move around spreadsheets around. By the way, things to be grateful for, a lot of tech workers don't have this kind of job. Okay. But there's a lot of the economy that does. Right. And so what happens is you have a lot of people, even the ones that have jobs and they have this stuff, right? They're under a lot of stress. And for all the reasons we're talking about, you know, like the lack of meaning, the lack of connection, lack of engagement, all that stuff, it shows up. Right. It shows up in the way they are, the people they are and that kind of thing. So your question was, well, what could leaders be doing different? I think we got to acknowledge that this is a real negative externality because right now, like even after the pandemic, right, if you looked at all of the how many CEOs 
said, we need to go back to work. Yeah. Without fully acknowledging, we're not even past this thing yet. Yeah. Nobody knows how this is going to turn out, right? Yeah. The vast majority of the world isn't vaccinated. And there's all of these consequences to the world's workforces. And that consequence is not some second order effect to your quarterly numbers. It's just not, right? It's got to be... A first order bit. It's got to be a first order bit. That's an Amazon expression, right? It's a first order bit. It's just not incidental. We've got to literally say like, look, the whole world is going through like a collective trauma with COVID. And it's not right to just brush it aside. Brush it aside yeah. Right. There's definitely sewage being flown into the lake here. And at some point, the carrying capacity of the lake is finished. Yeah. Right. And so we got to acknowledge that and we got to go. Now, the thing is, there's a lot of good people that are trying to do right. Yeah. And, and it's always a balancing act. But like, I definitely think there's a lot more around acknowledging the elevation of this into a first order bit that needs to happen where you look at the workplace and the workforce and you think about, well, what is the set of businesses that can be built where meaning is at the center, right? Where the jobs are actually like accretive to that person's well-being. Yeah. You need to put in a lot of thought to do that, right? And you have to like consider it to be a real first order bit and think about it that way. Otherwise, you're just going to add, you're going to make some small changes that don't really make that impact. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, I think what has happened with the pandemic, before, the bias was always towards incremental change, yeah. right? Like little bits, like here and there. And I think with the pandemic, what has happened is a lot of these institutions, they're in this mode where they can't quite go with incremental changes anymore. Yeah. They've got to start flipping. Yeah. Something dramatic, something drastic, something right. meaningful. And I think it's happening. I actually think some of the tech companies are actually leading the way here, right? Yeah. Like, so if you look at the number of companies that said, we're going remote, yeah. we're just going to lean into this new world, yeah. right? And now there are jobs you cannot do remote, okay? Yeah. So just be upfront about that. But I think that I'm more alluding to the mental model. Right? I'm, yeah. I'm saying that like the principle is not to resist the change, yeah. but uh, lean Need into it. it. Yeah. I think there's another tech company, a very large tech company in Seattle, also who's doing like, Three months mental leave if yeah. you want, right? So you have to have those kind of options for your employees so that they can take the time off they need to take the time off because unless that's an open item that they can use, it's, it's kind of hard to go about doing, right? Basically, you need to really have a lot of empathy. And um, I think another thing which I was thinking was you shouldn't make everything a priority and push everything, like make your teams run Twice as hard, maybe. you got to give people some downtime and have them relax a little bit, maybe even. Well, yeah. And I think that gets to the first order bit versus incidental thing that we talked about before is that a lot of times that's exactly what's happening is that the prime directive is whatever that goal they're trying to hit is. And then like the rest recuperation, all that stuff is like... It's all below the line. Yeah, it's below the line. Yeah. Now, again, you know, I think I don't want to speak in... generalities right there's a lot of companies doing this right but we're trying to answer the question what could leaders do right and i think you don't have to go very far to find people that work that just don't have the privileges that like someone who works at a google or a facebook does right i think that's the important thing yeah so i think i had a couple of other points if you're at a leader level right you can definitely do some things where you're setting aside time for team events 
You could have things, small things that make a difference, like no meeting Fridays, help build a sense of camaraderie within your teams, improve direct communication with your directs and with your teams, have periodic check-ins with your team and those kind of things. I think all of those things kind of, you got to build a strategy around it. Even if you're not like a Uber leader, if you have a couple of teams, if you have 50 people, 20 people, whatever it is, right? I think you need to come up with a strategy of how you're kind of training your leaders who are in your organization to identify burnout, identify, navigate mental health problems that your employees might be facing, but at the same time, like come up with a strategy which you and your team can kind of use, right? Yeah. No, and I think those are super important on a more like, you know, manager by manager, yeah. like, yeah. you know, tactical basis. That's like block and tackle, yeah. right? You got to do that. You can't like put it aside and say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I think it's becoming a core part of every manager's job to have a very good strategy around this and to actively be thinking of how they're going to boost team morale, how they're going to build team spirit, because you're not in at work anymore. I think when you're at work physically, I think things used to naturally happen. Like people used to meet talk together for lunch. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that used to like just happen, right? The chemistry was just right. The people were all coming together. But I think in today's world where everything's kind of distributed and everybody's working from home, I think you've got to spend more time to figure out how you're going to do that for your team and how you're going to enable your team to do that. That's absolutely right. Like all of the rituals just got taken away yeah. because of the pandemic, yeah. right? So a lot of the connective tissue is gone. And I think this thing I noticed with younger, you know, there's now been an entire, I think like two cohorts of fresh undergraduates. Who, who joined the workforce. In COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I now have had some time to observe that the impact is so different for yeah. them than yeah. it is for someone even like a few years more senior to them yeah. or someone like me who's more been, in, been in the workforce for a while. And I think it's very, it's very disruptive to that entry-level person. They don't have any of the habits of working. Yeah. They don't have any of the pre-existing handshakes and the kind of learned little things that you pick up along the way of how to like connect with someone, yeah, right? Yeah. And someone middle of their career, I think, going to handle this a lot better than someone who's brand new to their career. Mm -hmm. And that isolation and not finding the ability to connect with other people in yeah. the company and learn, that stuff's going to hurt. Now, with that said, I think there's a flip to this, which is it's also encouraging, I think, a lot of people to find creative ways to work, creative ways to think. And, and build relationships. And build relationships. And I think there's an entire world of opportunity in learning to build relationships in a professional setting in a structured way yeah where you're disciplined about it instead of just like bumping into someone right yeah. which has some value like yes. you know the serendipitous thing yeah but i will say that like if you want to build deep meaningful professional relationships you have to have trust and in a professional setting trust is built by saying what you will do and doing it that's yep. the first component of trust. And two, understanding where that other person's coming from, like yeah. understanding their worldview. If you do those two things, you will build trust. That is not a happy hour. That is yeah. not water cooler. Yeah. That is not yeah. you shooting the shit at the pool table with someone. That is how you build trust that lasts, like that deep trust. A well In a professional trust. setting. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it will carry you 
through jobs, yeah. those relationships, and it will take you very far. And I think if I had known that, or if I had had a pandemic in your early 20s, it's an opportunity for you to learn that real fast and really, really just kind of hone that skill. Yeah. So a lot more of your relationships are out of that, the deep, deep trust. Yeah. Most of the things which we wanted to cover, I think we covered most of those things. And I think we got a lot of good content. Any last words? Yeah. I think there are certain things that will pay you back no matter how much time passes, certain skills. And I think that you can't go wrong practicing some of this stuff. And the things that we talked about in the last two podcasts, learning to think from first principles in a structured way, active listening, being able to build trust, being kind, taking care of yourself and not letting burnout hit you, knowing your own story, owning it, and understanding your own internally calibrated compass that shows you where to go, building your own tribe that's not just colleagues, but like a tribe of people that care about you, yeah. that echoes your values. This stuff, there's a lot of things in the world that will change. We yeah. might have like flying cars, colonized Mars, but I'm absolutely certain about yeah. these things. That they won't change. And the qualities and skills that will last for many lifetimes, right? Yes. It's not just this job or it's not just this profession. It's whatever you do tomorrow, even if you completely switch careers and become something totally different, they're still going to come and be very handy. Yeah. So that's... Their life skills. Their life skills. And they apply outside of your job. So it's like, I'm almost like it's like a no-brainer. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you do these things? Yeah. Right? You'll be a better person. You'll be a better spouse, a better yeah. father, better mother. Yeah. Just do them. So nice of you to join us, Arjun. And this is a fantastic, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. And for everybody who's listening, do stay tuned for many more podcasts coming your way. Thank you so much, Arjun. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mario. I really hope that gave you some new information that you didn't know and you could put that information to real use. This is definitely outside uh, the TPM podcast, which I normally do. But Arjun and I, when we met, we really felt that somebody needs to talk about this. And since both of us had a little bit of experience on burnout, we said, okay, let's do an episode for all our friends. So I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you got some good takeaways. If you liked it, definitely like and share it with your friends and also leave a review on um, Google Play or the podcast app. Thank you so much, my friends. Bye-bye.